0: Episode 267, COVID-19, From Now Until June, Action Steps for Hospitals, Payers, Employers, Pharma. Today I speak with Marty McCary, MD, MPH. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Marty McCary, MD, MPH, is a surgeon at Johns Hopkins. He's a professor of surgery and health policy and management at Johns Hopkins University. And he is also the author of The Price We Pay and Unaccountable. I had the honor of speaking with Dr. McCary last week, and I learned a lot. For one, the worst is between now and June. For two, it's all about ramping up capacity as fast as possible in our hospitals. We talk a lot, Dr. McCary and I, about what that looks like and what other stakeholders like employers and pharma can be doing right now in this very, very reactionary phase. Spoiler alert, on Thursday this week, so two days from now, a second episode with Dr. McCary will be out. In this second show, Dr. McCary discusses the next phase of this pandemic when all of the pent up demand becomes a backlog of patients who need care for everything else besides COVID over the summer. My name is Stacy Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Marty McCary, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Great to be back with you, Stacey.
0: What was the moment that you realized COVID-19 had the potential to be the problem in this country that it has become? Because you were one of the first to sound the alarm bells. What was it that caused you to do so? You know, I'm not a virologist.
1: I'm a public health professor. But when I would go to a virologist or any scientist and say, is there any scientific basis to suggest that what's happening in Italy would not happen in the United States? And they said, no, we're human beings. The American immune system is not stronger than the Chinese immune system or the Italian immune system. And we started seeing these arguments that just were implausible. Oh, the Italians are older. Italians, on average, are seven years older. It's not a a nation of octogenarians. And so we realized these arguments as to why we would be different. We're exceptional. We're different. We're not going to have this horrible event in the U.S. They made no sense. They were illogical. And in fact, as things started to happen here, people would argue that we have better precautions, better hygiene in the U.S., Well, we have spring breakers out there celebrating together. So not only are we maybe not better, we might even be at higher risk. So that's the background that got me roped into this entire COVID-19 discussion.
0: Not that this country needs another conspiracy theory, so I'm not even going to go there. But was it just kind of like willful arrogance or not even willful, just we're so awesome that this can't happen here?
1: If you read the book by Patrick Kennedy, The Rise and Fall of Great Nations, I think is the title. The theme is that for the seven great empires through human history, the common downfall from the Roman Empire to, you know, the recent British Empire has been national pride, a sense of arrogance that we're untouchable, that this, you know, we can't possibly be susceptible. The reality is that we had this notion that, oh, it's happening over there. We got different pieces of information about the Wuhan province in China and what was happening. People would debate on television their opinion as to whether or not that was actually happening. And I'm thinking, call them. They have phones. You can call the doctors. You can ask them what they're seeing. <laughs> There's in their this ICU thing days.
0: called the internet. <laughs> yes,
1: you can do a Skype. You can go on Twitter and watch the videos of their ICUs. We live in a very opinionated World, right? Maybe the most opinionated generation in the history of of mankind. Everyone has an opinion that is promoted by social media. Twitter is a place for shouting. And no one's listening in society. Everyone has an opinion, but no one's listening. I mean, I'm guilty of it. When I watch football, you know, I feel like, ah, oh, they shouldn't have thrown it. They should have run it. What do I know about football? I can't even play ping pong. But, you know, I feel like I'm an expert in football, and I blurt my opinions about Tom Brady getting traded. The reality is it's a societal problem and we don't listen. And if we did listen, if we called and we watched and read what was happening in Wuhan and Iran and Italy, it is a movie that was about to play in the United States and did play. And the preview was right there for anybody who was willing to watch it. So I do think that there's this sense of we're indestructible, we're resilient, You know, I heard on uh, CNBC, one of the commentators just say when he was asked, you know, if this is happening in Italy, what's to say it's not going to happen in the U.S.? And he says, oh, I I just I just think I just I and he had no answer. And it's that scared me. Another commentator said on the news, I just think American ingenuity and innovation is going to beat this thing. And I thought, wait a minute, this COVID-19 is a coronavirus Coronavirus is the type of virus that causes the common cold. We've been working on a medication for the common cold for 50 years and we have nothing. Why do we think we're going to come up with something in the next four weeks, which is you know, our lead up time to the peak? So all of that was very disconcerting. And I think, it, unfortunately, it was a function of our society having opinions without listening.
0: What do they say? You can have opinions about a lot of things, but you really can't have opinions about facts. <laughs> That's right. Um, So you said said leading up to the peak. So it is March 22nd right now, based on this movie that has played in theaters and is coming soon to One Near Us. What does the next four to six weeks look like?
1: It's going to be ugly. So in watching Italy, Italy has nearly 1,000 deaths each day right now. Now extrapolate that number to the US population, which is about six times larger, and it is slightly younger, but adjusting for age and size, we would have 4,000 Americans dying per day at this stage ahead of the peak. Now Italy is about two to three weeks before their peak. We are about two to three weeks behind Italy. So the next four to six weeks are gonna be ugly. Uh, New York City hospitals, are overrun, my friends who are doctors there are calling me and they're saying, we just can't take any more patients and we need all beds and healthcare professionals to work on this crisis. Now, in healthcare, we have a double whammy. The highest risk occupation for getting COVID-19 in the US is a healthcare worker. And so we're seeing a shrinking of the healthcare workforce as people get infected and some get quarantined for, for exposure and some don't feel comfortable coming into work. And to be honest with you, high-risk workers should not be working in the hospital. You know, there was an article that a hospital is r- recruiting retired physicians. That is a bad idea, okay? Older folks are at high risk of this infection. We don't want our most vulnerable at a location where transmission is high. Paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that 41% of all infections overseas in China had some degree of hospital transmission. Either a healthcare worker brought it home or somebody went into a clinic or a hospital to get checked out and acquired it. So that was an estimate in JAMA. I don't know if it's true, but it's high. That's high. And we know healthcare workers are at the highest risk. We are seeing this double whammy of a healthcare workforce shrinking. At the same time, there's a massive demand with an influx of patients.
0: And if we're trying to do something to support our physicians, so there's a lot of all of us are patients, right? Even if we're healthcare executives during the day. What should we be doing to support the clinicians that are out there risking their health to save our friends and family?
1: I appreciate that question, Stacy. You know, I do worry about our nation's nurses and first responders and critical care doctors and all doctors and respiratory therapists. Right now, healthcare workers need help. They need childcare. They need basic Right now, they, they need help. PPE. Yeah, I'm involved a little bit with the TV show, The Resident since it's based on a book I wrote. They donated all their masks and gowns to the local hospital. Uh, we're seeing construction sites do the same. We're seeing places get creative now and developing new ways to create gowns and masks. We're seeing companies repurpose. We're seeing individuals donate. We're seeing volunteers.
0: How long would you say this first phase is gonna be where it's acute and we're being reactive as opposed to proactive? If you had to kind of put a bookmark around how long this initial, I'm not sure what you call it, we'll stick with phase, is gonna be.
1: So there's two good indicators as to when this will be beyond us. One is, what is it like in Wuhan province right now? And I actually called doctors in Wuhan last night and they said they are starting to feel comfortable that the worst is beyond them, and that they are now at a point where it's starting to resemble a normal healthcare environment and a normal pace of society. Now, the schools are not open yet, and although China always likes to project strength and is reporting no new cases, the reality is they are still dealing with the COVID-19 virus, but it is far more manageable. Now, they got hammered hard in December, and then it led up, you know, in January, it escalated. And they probably peaked in January or February. And so now we've seen the natural three month course that we think this virus will take. We're not positive that reinfection or a second wave is not going to occur, but so far it looks pretty good that the quarantining and the strategies have worked. And so far, I think it looks promising that they're beyond the main wave here. So three months, you're thinking? Three months. The other indicator is historically novel virus pandemics last about three months. The Spanish flu was three months. SARS was about three months. MERS was about three months. So for some reason, novel virus pandemics are about three months in any one location. Now, is this virus heat sensitive? Like I go to bed praying each night. Lord, please make this virus heat sensitive. Have it mutate to a less severe form. Or allow community immunity to just get rid of it and let it die or let it somehow poop out. But we've been following information from Buenos Aires, where it's been in the 80s nonstop. And guess what? They have the same natural trajectory of the spread of the virus as anywhere else. India, the same thing. So we'd like to believe that it maybe is heat sensitive, but pretty good research now is showing that the virus likes temperatures of 55 to 80 degrees outside the body. And inside the body, heat, the temperature outside does not really seem to affect its transmission. Maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll change. Let's hope it does.
0: Yeah. But as you had mentioned, these coronas tend to go through a three month cycle. So, I mean, best case, we're looking at three months from the point of the peak.
1: I think in June we're going to be good. I think by then we're going to have the green light. I think people are going to be very scared to get out there again. But slowly, we're going to see people resume some semblance of normal life. I think the risk of secondary infection and a second wave should be low enough then. There should be community resistance. I think the summertime will be a good time for us to rebuild. Now, we can't say for sure, but based on the early observations in the Wuhan province now at the towards the end of the decline of this infection, And based on history that tells us novel virus pandemics last about three months, I think we should start feeling good about being active again. So when people hear, oh my gosh, my school is not gonna reopen, or this event was canceled, think of it not as dramatic moves that are made permanently, but think of things as a temporary two to three month change in the way we live our lives. So we can get through this, we can develop the community immunity, We can stop the transmission so this virus dies out and no longer jumps around, and we can get back to our normal lives.
0: So let's talk about business leaders. I mean, employers, not in the healthcare industry, employers. What should these business leaders and executives be doing right now?
1: We need young people in the workforce in essential services, and we need to take care of those who are at highest risk. So let's say you're a business leader and you're thinking, what do I do to manage this COVID-19 stuff going on? Figure out who's high risk in your company, get them off the job, have them work from home or just have them not show up at the office. If you've got a, you know, if they can't do their job at home, doesn't matter, they shouldn't be at work. We don't want organ transplant recipients out there active now at work or in society with risk of contact. We don't want those with lung disease. We don't want our most elderly individuals at risk. So those folks need to be out of the workforce and then they need to be out of the risk of human contact. Anyone who's non-essential right now should not be working unless they can work from home. And for essential services, remember, it's not just healthcare; It's supply chain. It's truck drivers. It's pharmacists. It's those who stock the shelves at a grocery store. It's those who manage payroll. It's those who keep our financial services active so that There's no run on the banks. And so people get their paychecks and they can afford food. Right now, there may be a mortality to the economic pandemic, not just the medical pandemic. And I think we have to remember that.
0: You know, one thing that I have heard is that hospitals may have an issue in the sense that if they're not doing any procedures, no one's getting health care for anything that's not acute then there are no patients recovering from expensive surgeries in the hospital. They're just inpatients, and that this is gonna cause a financial cataclysm for some of these organizations. How do you see that? No one
1: really knows the financial implications of a pandemic moving a lot of patients into critical care and shutting down some of the high revenue elective surgery. And let's face it, some of the biggest revenue at hospitals is elective surgery, things like orthopedic surgery, cancer surgery, chemotherapy administration. So no one really has quantified the impact of all of this, but we do know a couple of things. We know some hospitals are doing very well with a big cash reserve and other hospitals are squeaking by with a tight margin. And even in the case of many rural hospitals at risk of closing or have recently closed. Those are the hospitals I'm most concerned about, the ones who are struggling because they may not be part of a consolidated system that's jacking up prices and having incredible leverage with an insurance company so that they can command a lot of revenue. It's the smaller hospitals that I'm really concerned about. Now, hospitals will take on a lot more critical care, and they will bill for critical care services. That I can guarantee you. Critical care generally pays very well, and ICUs generally can be very profitable. At the same time, we have less elective surgery. so. What the American Hospital Association has done is they've gone to the government and said, look, we've got unknown risks here. We've got a potential loss in revenue. We've got all this uncompensated care, which of course every hospital thinks they do more uncompensated care than the mean. Just like doctors, think they take care of more risky patients than the mean. And so they've gone to the government and said, we need $100 billion. And the government in a sort of moment of panic has said, you're saying, you need $100 billion? We wanna give you $100 billion. Nobody knows how that's going to be dispersed. And my concern is that you have some hospitals that are already sitting on a lot of cash reserves who are going to be profiting from the COVID-19 pandemic because they are charging very lucrative critical care services more broadly, and they don't need the money, and they will be getting taxpayer subsidies. And then the smaller hospitals and the struggling hospitals especially the rural ones which have been getting hammered, they will not get their proportionate share. And that is my concern right now is the equity in distributing this mass set of funds. Now, look, if we're going to overfund an institution, I'd like it to be our hospitals. You can never secure the perfect amount of funding for any industry where the government is supplementing funding. But if we're gonna overfund either the auto industry or Boeing, or healthcare, I'd rather we overfund American hospitals. So it's a big unknown right now, but remember, it is transient, and some hospitals are not paying per diem and traveling nurses during this time who might otherwise staff the operating rooms and other elective services.
0: You feel like, aside from the rural hospitals in states that didn't expand Medicaid, you know, they are going into this with severe issues. So what we need to do is ensure that they come out of this okay and open so that when we hit the backlog phase, that we don't wind up with a worse issue because we have even fewer hospitals than we did earlier, which weren't enough in rural areas.
1: I'm very worried about America's rural hospitals and the small non-consolidated hospitals that have been doing their best to serve their communities. Many of these hospitals were built with an incredible charter. Some were started by churches. They were floated by philanthropists. We've got to take care of those hospitals now because they have this unforeseen hit that nobody could have modeled in any financial prediction. For another company in America that may have simply been spending all of their revenue and maybe spending it recklessly or lavishly, I have far less sympathy for that organization. The companies with big cash reserves. Apple, Google, these companies with massive cash reserves, money that they just have in savings. Now, granted, it's easy for them to have money in savings, but the money they have in savings, those companies are are going to come out roaring out of this financial period. Hospitals have not done a good job stashing money away. As a matter of fact, many of them run on razor-thin margins, and you could argue that's for many different reasons. There is some value to the old saying, of have a savings and always keep some money on hand in a time of an emergency.
0: If you were a pharma company, or a manufacturer, how would you be looking at this? I'm, you know, like obviously there are medications in development, but you know, even after a product is on the market, what we're looking at, there are you had mentioned earlier, patients aren't taking their medications. Adherence is a gigantic issue in this country, you know, patients taking their medications that costs a fortune when they don't. But if patients aren't going to see their doctor and they're not getting their meds titrated or they're not getting their meds changed when they need to or put on new meds or encouragement to take the ones that they are, maybe they can't even call to get refills. What advice would you have for a pharma manufacturer to be a force, a positive force here?
1: We do live in the most medicated generation in the history of the world. And with those medications comes a duty to manage them, which means close surveillance. And so for many physicians, they've realized, hey, we've got to reach out to patients, we've got to use telemedicine, we've got to get back to them quickly once the pandemic is over. But I think the pharma industry has also gotten a wake-up call that, hey, you shouldn't just be developing lifestyle, blood pressure and cholesterol-lowering medications, and that the real reward is not just in chemo agents that have a 5% survival benefit over the standard, but maybe we should start working on viruses. And if we start working on antivirals and things that affect the immune response and activating lymphocytes and working on the cytokine storm response that actually results in respiratory distress when you get the viral infection in your lungs. That is where there is not only a great need, but it's an episodic every decade or two decade need, and that can have massive rewards. So I think it, it was a message that this COVID-19 infection has sent to the pharma industry to say, hey, look, it's not just lifestyle medications and chemotherapy where the big money is. If somebody can attack COVID-19, somebody can address coronaviruses, if somebody can address influenza, or have a system to monitor, study, and develop drugs for novel viruses quickly, that could be a potential game changer. And there's a big reward for the public health and also for the pharma company that works on it. Right now, most of the blockbuster drugs are lifestyle medications. They are things that could otherwise be treated with food as medicine, or high-quality sleep, or education on lifestyle, or certain behavior changes. that is The sign of all of these lifestyle medications is not the marker of a great society. That is the marker of a society in need of a different approach. And I think when we start talking more and more about lifestyle and behavior change, as many of the young doctors and practitioners are talking about, And we can shift pharma to really work on novel, risky new medications that are sort of outside of the box thinking when it comes to cancer care and it comes to antiviral therapies. I think that's when we have benefited from some of the ugly lessons of the last year.
0: Yeah. And it could be also that the public is more sensitized to the need for such things. You know, maybe if you had asked anyone in November how much they'd be willing to pay out of pocket. Um, or an employer, how much they'd be willing to pay out of pocket for a flu, something or other, the appetite would not have been there. But now the consequences are very real. So even if we're just thinking about this from a Wall Street perspective, there could be a greater, you know, the P&L might look a little better for such things.
1: I think the FDA and the N- NIH also got a major wake-up call Because they have been using legacy trial barrier systems to approve medications using peacetime protocols at a time of war. We're at war with COVID-19 right now, and we're seeing these old school approaches that we have to have a randomized controlled trial in order to say that it's okay for people to use this medication when some of these medications have been out there already, some of these are presumed to be safe based on an early sample of patients, and they're being used in patients in a death spiral in the ICU. So we can change the standards a little bit at a time when this virus may kill one-tenth of one percent of our population. I have talked to a scientist who has a very creative new approach that treats respiratory failure from COVID-19, and he can't get a call back, and no one seems to be interested. And he doesn't know what to do. And it's like this guy could have a major therapy that could reduce mortality from COVID-19. And he's dealing with this dysfunctional old school FDA bureaucracy where they're telling him to go to a website, do these steps, fill this out. They're not calling him back. And it's like, wait a minute, we are at war right now. Your job is to facilitate as much as it is to be a gatekeeper. And the old school, you know, cross your arms and be a stingy librarian to make you feel guilty for not filling this form out right. Those days we need to put behind us and we need to help researchers that are working specifically on lowering deaths from COVID-19. Some of these medications are safe. Some of these medications have been shown to work in animals. Some of these medications are radical outside-the-box approaches. But don't you think we should throw everything at this thing if we are about to witness over 100,000 Americans die and we can tell at the end stages of, of their life that they are on a ventilator in an ICU with very little hope and the care starts to border on futile and then we say hey, there's this medication that respected scientists really believe could work. Can we start giving it to patients and track it? There are other ways to learn from patients besides a giant large cohort randomized control trial. We can learn through other study designs, but the old school approach that ideally was really developed for blood pressure management and developed for chemo testing That is the old school randomized controlled trial, which has its place. But at wartime, we've got to remember that we can learn from other study designs.
0: What we're talking about here is real world evidence or real world data, which is becoming more and more accepted. That's the good news. And there are efforts afoot in the FDA to accept real world evidence as part of a submission. In fact, I think it might be required. So maybe the proportion... Of what can be accepted will start to expand and it'll be less about the double-blind placebo-controlled trial and a little bit more weighted towards real-world evidence in cases where the situation is what you're talking about that you know what i'm understanding from what you're saying is that this every situation is not some homogenous blob you know like we've got you said blood pressure or diabetes or or chemo you know like exactly like you said those are different situations So we can't treat every situation with the same exact reaction or in the same exact way when they are wholly separate. So maybe in cases like this, the idea of using real-world data becomes a much greater portion of what the approval process looks like than in situations that are not so dire.
1: That's a good point. You said it perfectly.
0: It's a little roundabout way, but... uh, I'll take it. Thank you. Let's summarize what we've got going on here. If I'm a hospital executive, what should I be doing here? Is there a way that we can summarize this?
1: Right now, hospitals need to focus on one thing, and that's building capacity. They need to let every patient and doctor know that anything that can wait three months must wait three months. Anything where the risk of patient harm is not escalating over those three months needs to just park themselves until we deal with this crisis because we are at the brink of rationing ventilators. Estimates are suggesting that between 200,000 critical care patients and two million patients could be coming into the hospitals within the next two months. If we're anywhere in that range, we will have required more than double the number of ICU beds that we have right now. Let's just do the math, 350 million Americans. Let's say 40% of them get the virus. That's 140 million. Now that's using the low end of the Harvard estimate. Let's say 15% of those, or let's say 10% to use a very safe estimate, require hospitalization. 14 million patients? Are we ready for that? I mean, this could be an influx like we've never seen before. It could be worse than Wuhan. But remember, in Wuhan and in Italy, they had a total martial law lockdown. We have not done that here. So I hope it's not true, but there is a chance that our epidemic could be worse because we've been watching spring breakers floating around and we're watching people in parts of the country ignore the warnings. And we're watching the governor of Oklahoma take selfies in a crowded food court this week, telling people, you know, go out there and do what you want to do. And
0: I learned a new word today. What's that? Covidiot. Like that.
1: <laughs> Covidiot. We could have 14 million people requiring hospitalization. Again, again I'm using very conservative low ends of the range of the estimates from what other places have seen. New York is reporting a 15% hospitalization rate. I'm using a 10%. I'm going even lower. Presumably, at least 10% of them need critical care of those hospitalized. million critical care patients, we have 100,000 ICU beds. We need to build, we need to expand, we need to set up tents, we need the Army National Guard, we need everybody, everybody. We need surgery centers to donate and convert their surgery center. We need every single bed made available for this infection that we can, unless somebody else needs urgent or essential medical care right now. Hospitals have to be laser focused on building capacity. I'm sad to say it, but as I talk to hospitals out there, I see a wide range of responses from well-prepared and doing everything to just now realizing that this is a major problem to massively undersupplied and even understaffed because some staff are either not showing up or quarantined or infected. And so we have a wide range And it's probably consistent with the range of denial that exists in society. A study just a week ago showed that 40% of Americans don't think this is going to get worse. I mean, that is a major problem when we have not even acknowledged that we could be like Italy. So hospitals need to be focused on building capacity, number one.
0: Dr. Marty McCary, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Great to be with you, Stacey